The scripture reading for today is uh, from Hebrews, book 12, starting in verse 18 through 29. Um, Please stand for the reading of the word of God. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight... (laughs) I start in verse 12. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may be made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angel and the festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will you escape if you reject him who warns from heaven. And the time at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I shall take not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is consuming fire. I will be reading in Spanish. Ustedes no se han acercado a una montaña que se pueda tocar o que esté ardiendo en fuego ni a oscuridad, tinieblas y tormenta, ni a sonido de trompeta, ni a tal clamor de palabras que quienes la oyeron suplicaron que no se les hablara más, porque no podían soportar esta orden. Será apedrado todo el que, todo el que toque la, to- la montaña, aunque sea un animal. Tan terrible era este espectáculo que Moisés dijo, estoy temblando de miedo. Por el contrario, ustedes se han acercado al monte Sion, a la Jerusalén celestial, la ciudad del Dios viviente, se han acercado a, mil, a millares y millares de ángeles, a una asamblea gozosa, a la iglesia de los primogénitos inscritos en el cielo, se han acercado a Dios, el juez de todos, a los espíritus de los justos que han llegado a la perfección, a Jesús, el mediador de un nuevo pacto, y a la sangre rociada, que habla con más fuerza que la de Abel. Tengan cuidado de no rechazar al que habla, pues si no escaparon aquellos que rechazaron al que los amonestaban en la tierra, mucho menos escaparemos nosotros si le le volvemos la espalda a los que nos amonestan en el cielo. En aquella ocasión su voz conmovió la tierra, pero ahora ha prometido. Una vez más haré que se estremezcan no solo la tierra sino también el cielo. La frase, una vez más, indica la transformación de las cosas movibles, es decir, las creadas para que permanezcan lo inmovible. Así que nosotros que estamos recibiendo un reino inconmovible, 
Seamos agradecidos. Inspirados por esta gratitud, adoremos a Dios como Él le agrada con temor reverente, porque nuestro Dios es fuego consumidor. Es palabra de Dios. Thank you, Douglas and Rice. I, I love when you guys do that, so thank you. Um, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Uh, I'm excited to preach from it. This is our final passage in Hebrews. Have any of you ever heard a hymn called We're Marching to Zion? We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion. The beautiful city of God. Yeah. Well, that's what this passage is about. Um, recall the beginning of Hebrews. The scene was this wide-angle image of the cosmos with God ruling over it. As we've trekked through each chapter of Hebrews, we've passed all these characters and stories calling us back to a life in God. Early on, we learned that Jesus is our trail guide on a pilgrimage to God. He's the pioneer whose life and suffering blaze our trail to God. And in this chapter, we imagine the end of the pilgrimage. The scene begins at the foot of a mountain. One scholar puts it this way. There must be no mistaking as to where they stand on the great Camino that has stretched through history from Abel to the present and continues on to this goal. They stand at the foot of the mountain. And so do we. All summer, I've pressed you to conceive of Christian faith not as a worldview to subscribe to or a group to loosely identify with, but as a journey closer and closer to God alongside fellow wayfarers. The preacher here is calling us to imagine with our senses that we are at Mount Zion, about to approach and enter the presence of God. That, that God's presence is found uh, in a place that's like a city on top of a mountain, but it's not easily approached. The scene here is really intense, right? There's fire and trumpets and a windstorm and this terrifying voice. I mentioned two weeks ago how God's majesty, holiness, power are overwhelming. These are images that have been given uh, somewhat negative connotations by preachers over centuries. Uh, sometimes when you hear things like God's power and his holiness, uh, it can sound like there's this tinge of abuse and unpredictable rage from God. And I would just say, try not to import that when you hear these things like fire and trumpets and God's voice. Uh, don't take away the power, but don't think that it's this erratic power that wants to harm you. Uh, I think of it more like the raw power of if you were standing a few feet below a 747 blowing right over your head. There's just this raw power at the presence of God. I picture the song that I picture here is National Anthem by Radiohead with trumpets blasting and these hot desert winds pounding my face with sand 
and the booming voice of the creator just hitting my chest. This is the I am who cracked open the earth to form oceans and crush rock into mountain ranges. This is the purest power in the universe. You don't simply approach that power and, and enter uh, the source of the cosmos. And it's not fake. It's, it's a real power. It's, it's the power that created the Mariana Trench, created El Capitan. God's power is crushing. It shapes things. It's terrifying. Never has Mr. Beaver's description of Aslan been more fitting. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Christ died so that we could pass through all of the force of that power and enter into God's holiness. Something that would otherwise destroy us. So that we might stand at the top of that fiery mountain, staring into the glowing center of good and fantastic force that created all things. I was overwhelmed a few times this week from spending so much time in this passage. I texted my wife and I said, I just, I just love this passage. And I think when you read it, uh, there's a lot of religious language. And so at first it doesn't really come across clearly. And I was just saying, this is how I'd sum it up in a text message. It's confusing to read. But this passage is basically saying, the cosmos is shaking from God's awesomeness. And instead of being destroyed, Christ is leading us right to the top of an exploding volcano of love. Shielding us from the power of that volcano so that we can see it without being destroyed. This is a mountain that we can't simply touch. We have to be led. The temporary things that we've learned about in Hebrews can help us understand this power. The law, the tabernacle, the priesthood, these were all part of God's first covenant with us. That he would teach us about our distance from him, east of Eden. Right after the fall, God clothed Adam and Eve, showing humans that he's going to care for us. And he's going to guide us despite our wayward lives. But the law and the tabernacle, the priesthood, all of which Hebrews mentions have no power to carry us up that frightening mountain. That's why Hebrews pleads with us to hang on to Christ, to not drift into a vapid religion. The law, the tabernacle, the priesthood, they can diagnose whether or not we will carry on towards Mount Zion. But no one can get there under their own power. A surefire way to prevent yourself from reaching Zion from reaching God's holy city atop that mountain is to hang on to the trinkets of this life instead of the hand of the trailblazer. That's what Hebrews has kind of been saying throughout. The trembling ones, those who cannot touch the mountain like a beast that's prone to destruction, are held back because they want to hang on to the petty little things of this life. We want to hang on to the petty little things of this life. In C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, uh, many of the characters 
don't choose to hate or reject God so much as they just can't let go of their little earthly trinkets. The heavenly people, the people of God in the great divorce are described as solid people. And those who are not in God are described as ghostly. One ghostly man is walking towards a mountain. I mean, it reminds me so much of this passage in Hebrews. One of these ghostly characters is walking toward the mountain of heaven, and he's got this red lizard on his shoulder. And as he gets close to the mountain, he starts to turn back. And as he turns back, an angel asks him, why are you turning back? And the man replies that the lizard can't go with him because he knows that the lizard would be too loud and disruptive for the perfection of heaven. And the angel says to him something along the lines of, you know, I, would, I can help you keep the lizard quiet. I can help you quiet the lizard. And the man lights up. He's thrilled. He says, I'll take your help. Please help me quiet this lizard so I can enter. And the angel approaches and says, I will kill him. And quickly the ghost tells the angel, no, no, don't kill the lizard. He doesn't want the angel to kill him. He just wants him to keep it quiet. The lizard can't enter the tranquility of the mountain. That lizard can't go to the mountain home of the solid people. The man wants both. He wants to enter the mountain, and he wants to bring the lizard with him. And when he must choose, he still attempts to have both. The lizard now, and the mountain a little bit later. Just a little bit more time with the lizard, and then the mountain later. He wants to delay and hang on to the lizard longer because he's afraid that killing the lizard will hurt him too much, will hurt the man. Eventually, he consents to the painful, grotesque grotesque act of, of strangling the lizard. And the narrator declares, as this angel is suffocating this red lizard, next moment the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. For a moment I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. What's so tragic about the human condition is we would give up the chance to rest atop the fiery, unshakable mountain of God's presence for our figurative pets. There are little gods, lizards, that we all want to hold on to. They might be worldview or lifestyle or misplaced desires or disordered loves. Early in Hebrews, we talked about disordered loves being the human propensity to point our affection and satisfaction towards things that are not sustainable. We try to keep them a little longer, deceiving ourselves into thinking that they're not mutually exclusive with the goodness of being in God's presence. God's glory, his holiness. This week I was talking to this licensed counselor friend of mine, and, uh, and then in a separate conversation I had an almost identical talk with a friend who's a pastor. And they were both bringing up uh, this, this movement called self-love. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love myself. I'm going to give myself self-love here. 
And the counselor friend was saying that he was seeing friendships and marriages be harmed by that movement because instead of people viewing self-love or self-care as the discipline of being healthy in order to pour out in relationships, people were turning ever increasingly inward. And my counselor friend was saying these, these can be good things, self-care, when it's motivated so that we can be a better friend, a better family member. Basically, prevent unhealth so that we don't harm others. But he's seeing that it seems to ever increasingly be underwriting people's schedules becoming more rigid and boundaries becoming more impenetrable as people seek to attain this unattainable zen that doesn't allow the beautiful mess of regular life to happen, to disrupt this false shalom. And where the counselor was seeing withdrawal, the pastor was seeing a tragic self-indulgence that led people to see others as their enemy. Because people become the enemies to your peace, to your false shalom, when they in any way disrupt your pursuit of tranquility in the practices you've set out. I think that that's just one lizard in our society. The pursuit of order and undisturbed repose. It's a disordered love. We also talked earlier in this series about an addiction to pursuing comfort through stuff. And we talked about meritocracy, the pursuit of or frustration from the injustice of not having reward for our effort. Whether we're overworking to prove our worth or to fund our desire to live a certain lifestyle or, or we turn ever inward with anger at the inconvenience of others, we turn toward our lizards and they make us ghosts. It keeps us from being solid people, hanging on to Christ as he drags us up the beautiful mountain of Zion. I once heard a pastor describe our cultural moment as humans coming undone. I love that image because this is a really exciting moment in human history. It's beautiful to watch this city innovate in healthcare and experiment with architecture. And people in this church have started businesses that impact our whole city. So it's not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we can't conflate cultural progress with human health. People are unwilling to quit their jobs or work less or downsize their house. Anything but radical lifestyle change to be closer to God. And as such, our flesh, this pastor was saying, is literally fraying at the seams. Our minds are unable to hold together the trauma of a hectic lifestyle. So we form addictions to online shopping, or we get obsessed with raising children, or we just can't deal with loneliness. We're frightened, and we try to keep our lizards when we need to kill them. Delving into Hebrews all summer has made me see how small my conception of God was. I did not see him as the thundering, windswept peak of Mount Zion. I, like the ghost, was intrigued by the idea, but not desperate to see my pets killed that I might grab the hand of Christ. But Hebrews has renewed me. A friend and I were having lunch earlier this summer, and she was talking to me about how concerned she was about her son knowing about God. And in that conversation, I had this real turning point in understanding Hebrews and 
when she was kind of processing raising her little boy, we were talking about the fact that Hebrews has been teaching us that Christianity is not about learning about God. It's about knowing God, holding his hand, being in his presence. It's not learning about him. It's learning him. It's knowing him. God loves you. Life is very traumatic. No matter the amount of uh, privilege that you have, it is traumatic to be a human this side of the fall. And trauma requires therapy. Therapy through medication is good. Therapy through counseling is good. Therapy through spiritual care is good. Those are helpful. But we also need a cure for these traumas. And the cure is to know that God loves you. God loves you. You might not see him. You might know about that. But do you know that he is close to you? You might be frazzled like a ghost walking around with a lizard on your shoulder. You might be unwilling to kill that lizard. You might just think that changing jobs or tweaking schedules or changing cities will do the trick. That could be the cure. You might think I'm picking on you if this is your narrative uh, because maybe we've met recently and you shared that with me. And I just want to tell you that, uh, that we're all trying these narratives on. I'm trying them on too. And God loves us. He loves us in that. He loves us in having these lizards on our shoulders. If you don't feel like you have a lizard that needs strangling, then I would encourage you to ask a friend if that's true. And strangle that burdensome idol that you think is your companion. Because the only thing keeping you from being closer to God's love, from the peak of that mountain, from his presence, is the baggage of carrying that thing around. Christ has gone before you as the trailblazer. He cut the path. He took on the suffering of the pioneer. And he's going before you to even secure your citizenship at the top, it says in verse 23. You're already a citizen of the city of God. The path has already been cleared. The suffering that it takes to get there has already been experienced. And his protection on your way up is confirmed. Here we are, standing at the base of the mountain. Step one, strangle the reptile on your shoulder. Don't worry about the pets of others, by the way. Just look at yours. Some part of you just will not risk the loss of that hindrance on your shoulder. Kill it. Kill your fear. Kill your insecurity. Kill your anxiety. Kill your workaholism. Kill your addiction to online shopping. Kill your entitlement to merit-based recognition. Kill your jealousy of other people. Kill your health obsessions. If you're married, your spouse has probably told you an idol of yours. Don't defend it. Kill it. We need healing from these vices that we have, like lust and 
pride and selfishness. That's what Hebrews has been telling us. That's why we read Hebrews 13 as a congregational prayers, because right after this passage, the preacher closes with all these applications. There's specific bitter roots that we all possess that keep us from grabbing onto the hand of Christ. So one more time. Kill the red lizard on your ghostly shoulder. Because ahead of you is the yonder fiery light of the maker of the universe. Our life on earth may feel like a hectic maze, but it's really pretty simple. It's a beautiful, wondrous trailhead. And up ahead is the God of the universe. And his force is like a tempest. The force of his winds drive the fire of his power across rivers and highways and an unstoppable consumption. The Spirit of God is pure power, forging mountains and stars and oceans and planets, and we are looking straight at it. And Christ is saying that we can approach it. Why would we approach and enter? We could be destroyed. We'd rather ignore him, maybe stay far, pretend that he's not real. But Christ came and he's grabbing us from walking away. Like that angel grabs that ghostly man. We started Hebrews really far east of Eden. That we couldn't even see the silhouette of that mountain. We were being told that we piddle in our lives and we've forgotten that God's even the maker. That's what Hebrews 1 was saying to us. The closer we get, the scarier God becomes a little bit. He's like a kingly lion. He's pure power. But Jesus is, through Hebrews, dragging us closer and closer and closer. This is how I imagine how the scene goes when we get to Mount Zion with Jesus. I'm trekking up a mountain enveloped by this stunning and frightful storm. It looks like a foolish venture. I hesitate. I look back. But Christ pulls me up the trail. He goes first. Letting the hail and the wind hit him as he's scraped and cut by the thorny brush of an uncut trail. We're getting closer and closer to the peak. The thunder is panic-inducing. The lightning is blinding. I'm scared. What reward could possibly be at our destination that is closer to this force? And I think, well, there's many trails down the mountain. And it might be moderately uncomfortable down there, but it's a safe existence for me in that valley. But at some point... We push through, we ascend past the timberline, and we're above the clouds. And now the storm's below us, and the sun is warm, and the view is clouds for miles. And we realize this mountain is unshakable. It's firm. Its peak is above these tempestuous winds. Christ, my trailblazer, my pioneer, has carried me through the pain and the terror of a journey toward God. 
Hebrews 12 is telling us that God is so powerful that his presence can destroy us. Yet he's so loving. He made himself a human shield to lead us to the heavenly city atop Mount Zion. This is how Lewis describes that mountain in The Great Divorce. The sound of unicorns had long since died away, and my flight had brought me to open country. I saw the mountains where the unchanging sunrise lay, and in the foreground, two or three pines on a little knoll with some large, smooth rocks and heather. On one of the rocks sat a very tall man, almost a giant, with a flowing beard. I had not yet looked one of the solid people in the face. And now when I did so, I discovered that I see one that sees them with a kind of double vision. Here was an enthroned and shining God, lowercase g, whose ageless spirit weighed upon mine like a burden of solid gold. Life in God is as scary as it sounds. It means encountering the one who forged together our whole galaxy and beyond. We will want to go back to Egypt. The familiarity of bondage. That's what Hebrews 3 and 4 said. We'll want to drift away, unhook from our steady anchor. That's what Hebrews 2 said. Belief in God is strange, like encountering a mysterious priest king with no history to speak of. That's what Hebrews 5 through 7 is saying. It means traveling through a tabernacle that reveals our imperfections the closer we get to the inner room. It means letting go of deep wounds that is shaped us for decades. It means forgiving unspeakable trauma. It might mean redefining how we understand our bodies. That is what Hebrews 13 is all about. Asking questions of our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our spirits that our loves might be reordered. But the goal is not to conform our worldview to a religion. It's to diagnose our narratives and put us back on the trail. All this so we might actually approach the top and enter the presence of God, who, like a mighty mountain, cannot be shaken. Who, unlike so many earthly fathers, uses his power not to manipulate us, but to grab us and rescue us from the storm. Last week we talked about that at times he will discipline you on the trail when you try to wander back down. So let me just end this book that I adore by saying, wake up from the slow drifting of meritocracy and materialism. Don't long for Egypt's familiarity. Listen to God, like Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Rahab. Leave your homeland. Follow the mysterious priest, Christ, toward the holiest place, God's presence. Your reward is to return to the presence of the one described at the beginning of the sermon. Go back and read Hebrews 1 and realize I get to enter into that presence. You can live a life sheltered by the one who in radiance made the universe. The one who sustains all things. Grab the hand of Jesus.
your trailblazing pioneer of faith and run up that storm-wrapped mountain. March on to Zion to feast with the God who loves you so much that he gave his only son to death that you might be sheltered, that you might be able to be in his presence, that you might be able to return to Eden. That's what Mount Zion is. It's Eden. It's going back to exactly how God made it. And we can enter that because of Christ.